Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Let's try that again. Good morning. It's two minutes past nine. You're tuned to 102.73 Triple R. Maybe you're listening via rrr.org.au. This is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name's Bron Burton and joining me by the magic of Skype is... Dr. Beach. Yeah. How are you going, Dr. Burton? <laughs> yeah, good, Dr. Beach. How are you doing? I'm very well. Excellent. Pleased to hear it. I'm, I'm getting a bit of a... Um, feedback here if you're not getting it there no no we're pretty good here so uh hopefully you can uh soldier on we might we might re-establish a, start, a skype connection during a track or something like that but um in the meantime we'll push on hey uh, thank you very much to tim thorpe for uh wonderful vital bits as always thank you to andrew minga for soulful bits thank you very much to edith for things to do today and i'm i kind of caught her little um her little shout out to marinara about halfway through Something to do with um, with uh, poisson. Did you hear that, Dr. Beach? Uh, no, I did not. But I did hear Tim's beautiful um, series of tracks with time in the in the theme. That was just yeah, so lovely this morning. It was glorious. But I missed Edith. I think we say I think we say bon poisson or something like that. It's a um, it's a <laughs> it's a French April tradition. You've got some lovely birds in the background there, Dr. Beach. I do, yeah. They're all they're yeah. all out this morning. Anyway, thank you very much, and uh, Tim. As always, you can catch him next weekend for six more hours of Vital Bits, both Saturday and Sunday from six till nine. We have a really big show coming up today. Rex Hunter is going to join us shortly in studio. He's going to be talking about sea bathing in Port Melbourne during the Gold Rush era and how it went from being quite an exclusive affair, uh, you know, for the hoi polloi, and then um, it went through a democratisation process. Rex's words there will ask what that means with the opening of the railway baths in 1861. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> laughing <laughs> with your uh, with your noisy um, co-presenter there, Dr. Peach. <laughs> anyway, we'll, we'll push on. So, um, yeah, really looking forward to finding out what this is all about. We're um, whoop. <laughs> I'm this just is... trying to um, close off the co-presenter. <laughs> This is very 2020. <laughs> it is for me too. I mean, I'm, I'm in ISO in case other people haven't gathered. That's why I couldn't come into the studio. It's all still happening. It's all, oh, of course it is. That's right. Um, all right. So that's that's Rex's segment coming up shortly. We're then going to have a quick chat with uh, Michelle Cheers down Mornington Peninsula Way. And this is in response to an article that appeared in the um, Age slash Herald Sun, yes, not Herald Sun, Sydney Morning Herald yesterday, um, which alerted us to something that we didn't really even know was going on. It was It's in the relation to the plans for some underwater installations at Point Nepean, um, the idea being that they're to attract yellowtail kingfish and give anglers an area away from shipping lanes where they can catch, uh, go, go fishing for kingfish. Some real concerns by locals and particularly environmentalists down there who sort of feel that this um, decision might have gone through, uh, perhaps with without consultation with them. So we're going to speak with Michelle Cheers uh, about this and, and why this is, issue is of such concern to them. 
Then we're going to be joined in studio by Chantelle Ford and um, by Skype, uh, via Skype by Morgan Ellis, who are both graduate students at the moment about next weekend. It's on Saturday. Um, It's an event that happens every year put on by the Australian Marine Sciences Association's Victorian branch. It's known as My Friend the Jellyfish and it's something that started back in the 90s. And if you've gone through marine science uh, in a graduate capacity in Victoria any time in the last 30 years or so, you'll know what My Friend the Jellyfish is all about. It's something we hold very dear to our hearts and it's still going, which is just wonderful. It's really a careers day for you don't need to necessarily be uh, an undergrad student, I believe, but we can ask um, Chantelle and Morgan all about that when they talk to us about My Friend the Jellyfish coming up next weekend. And Dr Beach, you've got some marine science, but also some news about the impacts of the Russian invasion of Ukraine on Arctic marine science. That's right, Bron. Um, yeah, the Russian government has been sanctioned, of course, with what's happening in the Ukraine, but unfortunately this has consequences for science, particularly in the Arctic. Um, Russia has 50% of Arctic territory and there's a lot of research, a lot of collaborative research, which has been going on for, for several decades now since the era of Gorbachev. And that, unfortunately, one of the consequences, understandable consequence of, of the sanctions against the Russian government is that um, collaboration with Russian scientists um, has stopped at the moment and we'll be talking about some um yeah some implications of that and one or two studies which are are suffering and yeah things that the unfortunate circumstances the unfortunate consequences of that and a couple of science papers i believe as well uh yeah well we i'll be concentrating on one of the papers which is well a paper which is alluded to toxic phytoplankton blooms in the Arctic, um, just north of the Bering Sea between Russia and Alaska, and how that research in particular has just ground to a halt. Let's uh, turn our attentions to, let's have a weather forecast, actually. We usually do that at this point in the show. Have you got something? Let's do that. Um, Yeah, well, where I am today is um, kind of, is pretty nice, a nice sunny morning, but in Melbourne town, it's going to be 19 degrees today. A few showers, maybe. 21 tomorrow, uh, 21 for the next several days, and yeah, 23 on Thursday and through looking uh, through to next week as well. Just not too much rain, Bron. A little bit of a shower, possibly midweek, uh, and maybe on Tuesday as well. And if you're heading out onto the water, if you want to know what's happening with the tides, and at Point Lodsdale, it's going to be high tide at around two o'clock, and it was low tide at about 7:15 this morning. So uh, we're heading for a slack water. Oh, I'm guessing around 10 o'clock. Uh, yeah, I would imagine, yeah. <laughs> Probably best to check, though, if you want to go and do something that involves tides right. and currents today. Um, had, a, yeah. had a couple of uh, people reaching out to us via our Facebook page. Um, one, Sally, who actually messaged us last week in the middle of the show, and we missed your message, Sally, so sorry about that, talking about lots of blue bottles washing up uh, around the Shoreham and Point Leo area and uh, hearing that someone had been stung in Flinders um, just snorkelling off the pier and asking what brings them into the area of its particular winds or, or something like that. I thought I'll ask Kate about this one when he's next in, but um, my understanding is, Dr Beach, it, it's it's a cyclical thing. It tends to happen every year. It's sort of a bit dependent because, of course, blue bottles just float on the top of the water. So what the currents are doing, bringing them down from the north, and then it sort of depends on what the winds are up to. Uh, yeah, indeed, it is a cyclical thing. Um, yeah, very interesting. I don't see much of it in Port Phillip Bay, usually. It's more something that we expect in other places. But, yeah, thanks for that listener to reaching out to us and letting us know about that. Yeah, it's an important observation, and I totally agree. I've, I've only really come across, you know, big... Um, 
you know, amounts of blue bottles on the New South Wales coast and particularly on the south coast. You get a lot of them in that sort of January, uh, you know, post-Christmas January time. But, uh, yeah, interesting observation. So thanks, Sally, for sending that one in. A um, couple of other things I'll mention really quickly and then we'll put on a track. It's the final weekend of the Lawn Sculpture Biennale. We've been following this one through over the last few weeks. So just mentioning that one, giving it a plug if you're down that way today, the final day today from 12 till 1, there's an artist's talk with Ryan F. Kennedy and Ben Michaels at the Ocean Road site. From 2 till 3, uh, dwell performance being Patty Berens. Uh, Biran, sorry, that one looks interesting. And three till five o'clock closing event and announcements of the LSB prize winners at the Aquatic Club. So final day of what looks like has been an absolutely amazing lawn biennale. Um, another one I just want to mention quickly, and we'll put this on our Facebook page. We had someone reaching out to us during the week. It was a Tanea. We're going to follow this one up with a chat with Tanea in the next um, next few weeks. But there's uh, it's Earthwatch Watch Australia uh, are running three separate expeditions to the Barrier Reef and looking at the impacts of climate change on the reef. And we know that there's been another big bleaching event um, over the last couple of weeks. So they have an expedition called Recovery of the Great Barrier Reef. It's in Magnetic Island, Queensland, with James Cook University researcher Dr David Bourne. And they're looking for dive masters who can join the trip. To dive on the expedition, participants will need to meet the requirements to join the James Cook University Dive Register. At the minimum, you need to hold a dive master or Australian Occupational Dive Certification as well as other relevant certifications. Uh, But it looks like an incredible trip to go on and to be part of. They're running three of them. uh, And again, it's off Magnetic Island. Dates are 22 to 26 of April. So that one's coming up soon, which is why I wanted to mention it if if, uh, people are thinking about taking part. There's two more. One, uh, 18 to 22 July and another one on the 4th to the 8th of October. So we'll put a link to that on our Facebook page, via our Facebook page. But um, thanks, Tanea, for reaching out. And we look forward to having you or someone associated with this expedition in studio or on the phone anyway (laughs) uh, to give us some more information. Yeah, Triple R is where you are. The time is 9.17 and we just had a call while we had that track on. Um, Jim rang from Aries Inlet and he wanted to let us know. We were talking about blue bottles and um, how Sally had reached out to us to let us know about a tonne of blue bottles down Shoreham Way. Jim was saying that they're down at Aries Inlet in very large numbers and his dog had accidentally eaten one. He was taking his dog for a walk on the beach and uh, ended up at the vet with a, a really sick dog. But anyway, fortunately, his dog is okay after um, being, you know, given a an injection to make him throw up everything, including the blue bottle, which was in his stomach along with his breakfast. So thanks, Jim, um, for letting us know that. And just, yeah, just a good community service announcement out there to anyone who has a dog walking on the beach. Just make sure that they stay away from those blue bottles because they, they can be pretty nasty. Indeed, Bron. Wow. Yeah. That's, um, <laughs> yeah, that's quite alarming, isn't it? It is. Um, so, yeah. Thanks, Jim. Really appreciate the call. 918 now. Radio Marinara. Good morning, Rex. Good morning, Ron. We'll just get your mic on. There we go. Let's try that again. How are you, Rex? Uh, good. I just put the 20 cents in the slot and now it's working. There you go. Hey, good uh, reminder that it is April Amnesty. <laughs> <laughs> we need more than 20, 20 cents. cents. <laughs> <laughs> April Amnesty, if you're wondering, it's um, it's kind of like a, a mini you know, slightly chilled out version of Radiothon. We don't really do the whole Radiothon thing, but we do have a theme. The theme this year is subscribe, donate, regenerate. It's very cool. It goes to a good cause, Brian. It, it, it does. Which Keep, is this station. Keeps us in champagne and, and Porsches. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> Indeed. Um, but yeah, look, if you if you haven't subscribed, if you like to kind of subscribe away from the hype of Radiothon, of our normal Radiothon through in August, now's a good time to do. Always so. welcome. Indeed. All right, let's get to sea bathing in the gold rush era. Yes, well, um, sea bathing, I'm, I'm part of my PhD thesis, I looked at uh, different parts of the uh, maritime economy in Port Phillip and then I came across sea bathing. I thought, well, that makes a really, really interesting part of the uh, dynamics of a, the gold rush's port. And you don't really... You don't really think of it as um, well nowadays. What we go swimming for re- relaxation, fun, or snorkeling, or whatever. But back in the old days, back in the old old eighteen fifties, the, the, the theory behind it was that diseases were attached to the skin by somehow some you know through whatever means through pores. Through was, pores. It, was it assumed that that's how they got into the body? Yeah, there was assumed that uh, like measles, smallpox, and those sorts of uh, diseases would. You know, creep around your skin all day, all night, and then by going for and then be drawn into your blood system, and then hey presto, you're not very well. But if you went for a bath, sea bath, that would wash all those toxins off your skin. And sea bathing in particular, rather than just having a bath. Well, if we think back to the 1850s, oh, oh, I can barely remember it. <laughs> <laughs> But no running water, obviously. <laughs> no running it's water. It's quite a big deal to have. If a you bath. want to have a bath, it, it's a f- fairly major operation because it's, it's said there's no running water. If you want your water in places like Footscray or you know on the outer burbs, you have to buy it in because yep. there, there was no there was fresh water in the uh, Maribyrnong River, but that was also a. Uh, a, no, a dump for noxious waste. Well, and everything else, yeah, ab- yeah. abattoirs, the whole works. So exactly. You, you wouldn't want to go bathing in in all of that. No. So your only option would have been to go into the into the salt water. In, well, there was also sea bar. Well, not sea baths, but but you could go to the like the Criterion Hotel in Melbourne and have a bath for you know like a, a sh- shilling or something or rather like that, and. Generally, there was Saturday night was the big night, and that was that was bath night, and that was right up until you know, like the nineteen fifties even. But assuming that you wouldn't be getting fresh water every time you went into that bath. Well, no, it, you know, first off, Dad has the bath, then Mum, <laughs> right. and then the twelve kids, and then probably the dog at the end of. The <laughs> Yuck. Yeah. Okay. So, so the the idea of sea bathing is becoming more and more attractive. But I guess. Yes. So what happened? So, I mentioned at the start of the program. These were words that you provided that it went from being something that was quite exclusive. Yeah. Why was that? It was it was it all kind of wrapped around just accessibility and modesty, and that you'd need to kind of have a big kind of canvas thing up around you if you wanted to well, go into the water. A lot of the sea bathing was, um, you know, a lot of the sea bathers got into trouble because they'd go down, men especially, forget to put their clothes on. <laughs> I just forget. <laughs> Whoops. And they're walking around with the, the tackle hanging out, <laughs> causing a great deal of embarrassment. And so they decided, to, like, uh, one of the first companies to set up was uh, at Port Melbourne was um, Laidit, and he, he was drawing uh, advertising for capital buy shares in his uh, bath business at one pound each and he was hoping to raise £10,000 to build this uh, fairly substantial complex. But the complex not only had the sea baths, it had, you could have hot and cold sea baths off off the water, you know, in separate sheds on a landing, or you could go out for a swim. But also, <laughs> they're not just baths, but they had reading rooms, you know, there was a library and there was towels and there was um, combs be provided. It was fairly exclusive and that's, 
that's what the problem was. It was exclusivity of it. Right. So more like a resort setup. Yeah, yeah, that sort of thing. But yeah, people still still required baths, so that the, you know, they would have to if they re- re- if they were desperate to go there for for a sea bath. Hey, Doctor Beach, feel free to jump in with a question. I can't see you, but um... <laughs> <laughs> well, I was I was just wondering, Rex. So that, that's Port Melbourne sea bath. There's also the Brighton sea bath yes. and there was the St Kilda sea baths. When when did they come in? Were they, Port Melbourne was the first one, was it? Port Melbourne was. Uh, well, Actually, there's ones that ones at Williamston. There was one. Oh, there was one in the Yarra River. Was one of the original ones, and then they started moving out towards uh, Port Melbourne and around the bay. And you found out the as like there was this Hobson's Bay Railway Company, which owned Railway Pier or Station Pier, and they invested in this, having sea baths built just to the uh, west of their pier, and they um, they democratised swimming because. Instead of paying one shilling sixpence to go for a swim in a sea bath, which was you know probably equivalent to twenty five or thirty dollars these days, they brought it down to four four pence, which was you know like maybe a couple of bucks. At so the it, most. Made, it made it affordable. But as as they did that, and suddenly the crowd started turning up. Like on one day, there was one thousand <gasps> one hundred people turned up to have their sea bath. Well, the pe- the more ex- <laughs> the more uh, people, you know, with the money didn't like the proletariat coming in, the further south the baths extended. So they started going further, you know, St Kilda, the Kenny Sea Baths, which was built in an old ship, and then Brighton, and then on the, um, on the western side of the bay down to Queenscliff. And, of course, they would have had the ability to travel too because they would have had the, the money to yes. be able to afford the travel, right? Okay. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So it, 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 I said the, um, the Sandridge Railway... Hobson's Bay bathing, baths, democratised swimming. Wow. Wow. So, and you, you mentioned the, the, the Maribyrnong earlier on, Rex. That was called Freshwater Creek, wasn't it, back in the Saltwater day? River, it's called. Salt, oh, Saltwater River, right, but they were getting the water from there, right. Okay. Yeah. We've been doing a bit of family history lately. Just I'd jump in here, something a little bit personal, though. We found out recently that in 1850, my great-great-grandfather's brother, Thomas, Thomas Beach, he went to the races and um, was coming back um, along what is now called the Maribyrnong in a boat, and apparently it had far too much to drink at the races, fell off the boat into the river and drowned. Oh, I've got wow. the report on it. Oh, <laughs> my goodness. <laughs> it's terrible, Dr Beach. It is terrible, but like, it, I don't know, sort of funny going to the races, getting pissed and drowned, falling off, <laughs> falling off the boat on the way back. Oh my my goodness. illustrious ancestors. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Good on them. <laughs> Hopefully you've lifted the uh, the tone yeah, a bit there, Beach. A little bit, maybe. <laughs> well, this is fascinating, Rex. Yeah. So uh, in the end, there ended up being three bathing companies. So this was um, the stiff competition. So there was uh, one built on the uh, barge called the Premier, which was about in in between, sort of um, just to the uh, just to the. Sorry, draw a mental picture in my mind, just to the east of uh, Station Pier, there was a, a baths there and there was a hulk that was being covered in. So it had a, like, virtually a house built on top and in there you could go swimming and then um, one, they had a diet, springboard and all sorts of stuff. Unfortunately, one one drunken seaman jumped off the diving board straight through into the bottom of the boat and <gasps> cracked, his, uh, cracked his neck and died. Oh, he died as well. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so it, it did Another have its hazards. <laughs> Don't mix alcohol and, uh, yeah. and water-based activities, I think, is the message here, yeah. which is kind of something we all know anyway. 
And then eventually they all closed down. I think the um, Hobson Space Railway bars, they changed names by then, it closed down and closed in 1908. And the uh, bars moved further east with all, virtually all, all along um, Beach Road or Beach Street, whatever it is. There's baths, you know, every virtually every few hundred metres. And when do they start closing them down? Because there's still, you know, you can obviously see there are some that are still it's, there. Yeah, there's still, um, I think one of the last ones was the ones down St Kilda, the warm sea baths there. Yep. And that would have been, when did Chopper murder the Turk there? <laughs> Fascinating stuff. Fascinating history. <laughs> Thanks, Rex. That's been amazing. Yeah, no problems. Now, if you've ever thought about a career in the marine environment, you'll want to attend next week's My Friend the Jellyfish event to be hosted next Saturday, 9th of April, by the Australian Marine Sciences Association's Victorian branch. Now, in its third decade, this annual forum includes presentations and speakers from academia, industry, coastal management and government covering anything and everything you've always wanted to know about working in or alongside the sea. To tell us all about it, it's a very big marinara welcome to AMSA Vic student reps, first from RMIT and here in studio with us, Chantel Ford. Good morning, Chantel. Hello, how are you? Great, how are you? Good, thank you. Thanks for coming in. Not a problem. It's and nice to get out of the house these days. <laughs> yes. And joining us by Skype from Geelong, from Deakin University, Morgan Ellis. Good morning, Morgan. Morning. How are you all going? Yeah, good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Excellent. Um, and look, I wanted to give a big shout out to Cade Mills and also Ali O'Brien who put us onto you both so we could talk about My Friend the Jellyfish today. So thanks, Ali, and thank you, Cade. Um, for listeners who maybe haven't heard about AMSA before, can you tell us a bit about AMSA and AMSA Vic and what the association's all about? Uh, yeah, I'll go. So um, AMSA is basically just our aim is to promote all things marine science here in Victoria. So we have things like public events where members of the Victorian marine science community um, give talks about their work and public members can come to that. We'll provide comment on government um, policy and things like that, as well as have, as we're going to talk about today, the, the student event. Um, every year. And AMSA's been running marine conferences and with the New Zealand Marine Society at one point as well. Is that obviously COVID's probably been a big game changer in this? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The the next AMSA conference is actually up in Cairns, which we're really excited about. That's this year, later in August. Yeah. Back when I was a graduate student, that was the big question is where is the conference going to be? And uh, it's always in the middle of the year. And so there's always the hope that it'll be somewhere nice and warm. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Oh, that's good. Um, now, you're both student reps on AMSA Vic. Um, what do you do as student reps? Uh, Morgan? Um, so, yeah, we help to sort of organise some of the events, particularly events that are targeted around um, undergrad students or honours and PhD students. Um, it sort of helps having that sort of <laughs> younger, sort of more approachable view for um, sort of getting some of the students involved in AMSA and sort of opening them up to uh, what the association does. Hey, Dr. Beach, feel free to jump in with a question. I, I shall do, yes. And, and yeah, Morgan, so it is very important for students to get involved in these societies, isn't it, to see what's happening in the in the broader world, I guess, outside of their own particular PhD project. So yeah, this is really, um, it's wonderful that you're encouraging this and you're setting this up. I wonder if you could tell us just a little bit about your PhD project. Yeah, certainly. So um, my PhD is looking at the invasive Northern Pacific sea star in Port Phillip Bay. So 
one of the main chapters is we're looking at their diets and sea stars have this ability to digest things outside of their body and then sort of slurp up the digested soup. So when you um, dissect them and have a look at their stomach contents, there's not a lot there that you can identify. So we've used DNA sequencing to be able to sort of tease apart what's actually in their stomach contents. And we found that they're eating quite a wide range of um, different um, groups of uh marine organisms that we never sort of knew that they ate before because all of their diet work had just been looking at sort of the hard body things like shells and stuff in their diets. And one of the, cool. um, oh, sorry, what was that? No, I, I just said, said cool. And I was just about to say, yeah, what, so the other organisms, the other things that they're eating that you, you can now see through, through DNA evidence is examples of those. Yeah. So things like acidians, um, flatworms, different sponges, um, Previously, they sort of only knew about things like the gastropods and the bivalves, things that would sort of leave a shell or a little bit of bone or something that um, could be identified. Yeah. That's amazing and quite scary because that was my assumption too, Morgan, that it was mostly basically whatever they could find as they were crawling along. But I had also assumed that it was mostly gastropods and, uh, and bivalves, but there's a whole lot of other stuff that they're consuming too. Yeah. So they, they definitely seem to have a preference for bivalves. But um, from what we can tell, basically anything they can um, get their little arms onto that they're going to try and start eating it. Yeah, including each other. Yeah. <laughs> and themselves. Don't they get to a point – hasn't there been this thing with, um, with the Northern Pacific Sea Star that if they get to the point of starvation, they'll just eat their own arms? Yeah, so they, they certainly can. Um, when they get stressed, they'll tend to sh um, shed their arms anyway. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, they, they are very discriminate about what they eat. So, How far through are you um, with your research? Um, I'm just over three years, hopefully okay. sort of submitting around June. So, um, yeah, <laughs> a lot of writing at the moment. Yeah. Oh, we'll organise a time to catch up with you separately to talk about this in more detail because this is fascinating and such important work too, um, you know, really getting into the nuts and bolts of what makes these animals tick and, you know, why they are so hard to control. Um, Chantelle, I wanted to ask you about your work. So you're at RMIT. What are you doing for your research? Yeah, at RMIT and the Marine Mammal Foundation as well. So my project focuses around the um, toxicology in the marine mammals that we we have here in Victoria, so the seals and the dolphins. Um, marine mammals are great indicators and sentinels for ecosystem health and, and function. So they are top water predators, they have long lifespans, and so unfortunately they do tend to bioaccumulate and biomagnify any sort of contaminants that are in the water system. Um, so by investigating what sort of contaminant concentrations um, and which contaminants are in our top water predators, we can get an understanding of um, of the overall ecosystem health, yeah. Dr Beach, I reckon you've got a question for Chantel. <laughs> I, I do, Brian. Chantel, nice to have you with us and thanks for joining us this morning on Radio Marinara. Um, so how, how are, you, are you taking samples from the marine mammals and then running these through a big machine like a mass spec or something to see what the toxins are? Yeah, yeah. So we get samples in two or three main ways, actually. Uh, so a lot of samples come from stranded animals. So unfortunately, there is natural attrition. So um, seals and dolphins will wash up on shore uh, deceased. So we do get internal 
organs from those um, those types of samples. We do collect samples from live animals as well. So from the dolphins, we'll collect a small uh, biopsy sample of skin and blubber um, via a remote biopsy. And with the seals, we're actually working with sorry, <clears throat> we're actually working with Zoos Victoria as well, and they've been collecting some blood samples. Um, and yeah, in terms of uh, the analysis, it's some pretty hefty machinery. <laughs> we've uh, we've done some LCMS work with Melbourne University, looking at GCMS, uh, yeah, GCMS and ICPMS. A lot of MS is in there. Basically, that's all. Uh, yeah, that's all mass spec. So, what you see on all of those sort of crime shows, yeah, the the, the mass spec. We're looking for for uh, peaks and concentrations in that. Yeah, and they, they give you an indicator of particular toxicants that are in the Yeah, yeah. Right? So we can by using um, by using. Uh, what do you call it? Standards. We can we can see what sort of toxicants at what concentrations are in those samples. Wow. Yeah. How far through are you with your research? Um, so I'm around three years as well, okay. but I have I have a lot more lab work to do. So it's keeping me very busy at the moment. Yeah. I'm really kind of pleased and encouraged to hear about graduate students that are not cranking out their PhDs in three years and under because I took somewhere between five and six years for mine. <laughs> I think COVID's been, uh, yeah. like with everyone, a bit, bit of a challenge as well. Yeah, yeah, I didn't have that excuse. I was about to say that, <laughs> you have that added challenge. And, and for you too, Morgan, getting out into the field, I bet you're really pleased in the recent months that you've been able to do that in the past six months or so. Yeah, definitely. Um, wanted to get on to my friend the jellyfish in just a moment to go through what's lined up but just while we've got you both here I'm just curious as to what's what's hot in marine science research at the moment um, one thing that we've known you know I've been doing this program a long time and um, Dr Beach and I were both graduate students ourselves at one point and you know know that there are at, at any given point in time there are certain things that are the kind of the, not the flavor of the month for one of a better phrase but you know things that are popular and, and are supported most importantly by by research funding what's What's happening in both of your institutions at the moment? Morgan, I might start with you. Um, so one of the real big things in marine biosecurity at the moment is using eDNA. So you can collect a water sample, you know, around 500 to a litre of water, pass that through a filter and get the eDNA from it. And then you can even run it through what's known as DNA metabarcoding and get to the community composition that's in the water. Or you can do targeted, um, a targeted approach, which is similar to like a COVID test, but for a marine invasive species. Um, so yeah, we can detect really low quantities of DNA in the water and then sort of pass that on and say, we think there's an invasive species here. And then the you know government, Parks Victoria and stuff can get in and have a uh, sort of more targeted search for where they might be. Yeah, amazing. And that... that the E in eDNA stands for environmental, doesn't it, Morgan, if I yeah, remember yeah. correctly? So, yeah, yeah, it consists of like sloughed cells, um, feces in the water, just, yeah, sort of all of those little extra bits of cellular material floating around. Chantelle, how about for you with RMIT, what's happening there? Uh, it's funny, um, the eDNA came up. I was going to mention that one as well. You can use that for um, biodiversity assessments as well. But really, yeah, just focused around the omics. We have genomics, metabolomics, transcriptomics, and we have um, a lot of, I guess, ecotoxicology biomarkers that use those technologies what, as well. What, what does omics mean? Um, it's the end of all of those. Right. <laughs> <It's just> the... <laughs> Let's get you both in. Of... Sorry, Dr. Beach. 
and, and a lot of that requires the mass spectrometers that you've been yeah. talking about, Chantel, doesn't it? So, yeah, for me it is. It's eDNA and it's the mass spectrometry, the way that we have this power to, to measure the genetics, so like the, the, the signature that an organism can leave just from slough skin, as you said, uh, by doing you know, PCRs, which we all know about now, but also by being able to put materials through these large machines, these really sensitive machines to detect the actual molecules, the, the toxins and things that you've been talking about, Chantel. Yeah. Let's get on to the details for next weekend. It's, in fact, it's not the whole weekend, it's Saturday, Marine Science Careers event, which we, are we still calling it My Friend the Jellyfish? We are, we are. We thought about sort of changing it, but I think the fact that you sort of resonate with it from, um, I won't say so long ago, a little while ago. <laughs> or oh, no, um, it was so long ago. <laughs> might be one good reason to to keep the name going, yeah. Yeah, it was just something that, that emerged. Um, and I actually really don't even know the origins why. We'll find out. I reckon Anthony Boxer will know why. But, um, yes, Marine Science Careers event. So what's happening next Saturday? Yeah, so next Saturday, um, please come along if you haven't got tickets already. Uh, it's from 10 till 2 at uh, the University of Melbourne. Tickets are $15, but that'll cover your morning tea and lunch. Um, you'll get to hear from presenters like Morgan on his PhD research, as well as some other lecturers, uh, postdoc researchers, as well as non-government organisations. Um, yeah, it'll be a really great day. Who have you got lined up from academia to speak? Uh, yes, there's Jeff Schmetter. We've got Morgan speaking as well. Um, a few researchers from um, Melbourne University. Yes, yep. it's going to be really good. And you've got um, government listed here. Who have you got from government coming to speak? Yeah, Morgan, I think. Um, I haven't had a recent look at the list. I think Cade Mills is coming to speak. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, he's oh, not we from... Know, we know Cade well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Cade's from um, uh, VMPA, running ReefWatch from there. But uh, look, we put all of the uh, details already on our Facebook page. You register via Eventbrite. It's going to be at um, uh, location room 428, Engineering Block C, Building 174. That's a lot of details. Grattan Street, Parkville, but basically it's at Melbourne Uni. And when you go on uh, the Eventbrite page, you'll get all the information that you need from there. Thanks so much for joining us. Not a problem. Thank yeah. you. All the best Thanks, for guys. yeah. All the best for next weekend, my friend. The jellyfish happening on Saturday. Dr. Beach. Ron, we've got just a few minutes left, but I'd just like to draw uh, listeners' attention to an article which I found in Hakai magazine. Some of our listeners may be aware of this, but it's a wonderful magazine, H-A-K-A-I magazine. You can find it online. This comes out of British Columbia, so it's a Canadian magazine. Lots of really interesting articles about the marine environment, but this one in particular is talking about the issues that are coming up with the Russian invasion of, U of Ukraine and how the government uh, Russian government has, of course, been sanctioned with good reason. I think most of us would agree. But the unfortunate byproduct of that, if you like, or the, the effect of that is that it stopped a lot of collaboration with Russian scientists, um, particularly in the Arctic. And in the Arctic, as we know, um, ice is melting, glaciers are melting. Um, there's a lot of research which is happening to try and understand what's going to happen in with um, you know as we face climate change, which we are in at the moment, and what's going to happen in continuing years. Um, and in this magazine, they're talking about, uh, for example, there's a um, the Arctic Observing Summit, which was supposed to be happening in Norway. Well, it is happening in Norway this week in Tromsø, uh, but the Russian scientists who were going to come are now not coming. And other examples of uh, well, there are. And so there they were going to talk about lots of different things that are involved in virtually every aspect of Arctic research because, as I mentioned before, I think earlier on on the show, about 50% of the Arctic is Russian coastline. 
Um, but one really interesting example, particular um, bit of research which is stopped, which they talk about um, in this article, is um, work which was done by a guy called Don Anderson is continuing to happen, and he's out of Woods Hole, and this is on toxic phytoplankton. As you know, I have a um, great fondness and affection for phytoplankton, but some of them, some dinoflagellates in particular, can make very nasty toxins. Don Anderson and his team found um, an alarming number of cysts from a, an organism called Alexandrium, which makes paralytic shellfish poison. So that will accumulate in shellfish and then it moves up the food chain um, and it can kill all sorts of marine mammals, birds as well and fish and if it goes to through to humans it can be very nasty for us as well for the first time last year in the pnas the proceedings of the national academy of sciences don anderson and his colleagues showed that there was an alarming increase in the cysts from this alexandrium dinoflagellate north of the bering strait um, so really deep into the arctic um, and the work that he did in this paper all the data points that he has stops at the russian border he was just about to get um, Russian scientists over to Woods Hole, where he is in the US, teaching the methods so that they could do the sampling themselves um, and to build on the data that he has already accumulated, this quite worrying data. So this is just one example of um, work which will be interrupted. There's all sorts of collaborations which are happening with the salmon fisheries as well. Uh, that has been interrupted. People who can't go on boats. There was an American scientist who was supposed to go on a Russian boat a couple of weeks ago. That has, of course, stopped. Um, but yeah, just one of the the really worrying consequences of all of this very unfortunate byproduct if you like yeah it's something that we um haven't really paid any attention to i guess in the grand scheme of things but uh it it does have really significant consequences we've focused so much of our energies on this program with um with antarctic research uh i guess because it's closer to home and, and we have those connections yeah. but yeah it's super important to understand what's going on up in the arctic uh, region as well yeah, all sorts of different researchers are, um, yeah, it, it's all stopped at the moment for, for goodness knows how long. Thanks, Dr Beach. No worries. That actually brings us to the end of our program. Um, thank you so much to our guests today, uh, Morgan Ellis and Chantel Ford, talking about my friend the jellyfish, Michelle Cheers, talking about the proposed installation of an artificial reach, reef down near Point Nepean National Park, and uh, and Rex talking about sea bathing at Port Melbourne. It's been a, uh, a great show. Next week continues. We'll be speaking with Bob Carney about a book that he's published called Fishing in the Good Old Days. Really looking forward to talking to Bob about that. Um, we'll have ne Neil Blake in talking about baykeeping and uh, we'll catch up again with Michelle Cheers and hopefully also Judy Muir and Jenny Worf um, to talk about this sudden issue which has just emerged out of nowhere down near Point Nepean. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.